today I've got a great guest. It's Mark Hamlet. And Mark is an attorney that has his own, his own firm here in Wilmington, North Carolina. He's one of the top construction litigators in the state. And he also has an extensive practice in alternative dispute resolution, which is kind of resolving things outside of the court system. Uh, sometimes it works through the court system, but I guess what I mean is outside of a, a trial setting. Um, so, Mark, thank you for joining us this morning. I wanted to begin by talking about ADR, and I think it's something that that kind of on a surface level, um, it gets confused a little bit because, you know, I, I even got kind of a little bit tripped up just trying to think about what's the best way I could put this that makes sense to folks because it, it's the aim is to keep things away from the trial context, or at least it seems like to me. However, most of the times where you end up doing a mediation or an arbitration, more times than not, it is affiliated with some sort of a court proceeding or at least a dispute. That's right, Justin. I, I think to start, you take the words ADR, alternative dispute resolution, and you break them down. Um, it is an alternative to the trial or court proceeding where you attempt to resolve disputes through discussion and resolution and negotiation. So generally in North Carolina, court cases proceed through the court system by filing of a complaint and by conducting discovery, finding out what the facts are, and ultimately presenting the case to a judge or jury for resolution. Alternative dispute resolution is an attempt to have the case resolved before the ultimate resolution in court. But you're correct that most cases are guided to ADR through the court system by the filing of a complaint and putting the case into ADR through the court system itself. The two main areas of ADR that I'm aware of are arbitration and mediation. Are there any other tools that, that, that you've used or you've seen that are kind of fit within the the realm of, of alternative dispute resolution? Uh, those are the main two. Um, and there's an important distinction between those two methods of alternative dispute resolution. Uh, arbitration is a usually a binding result so that the facts are presented, a fact finder, the arbitrator or arbitration panel makes a decision, and that decision is binding on the parties. I think one of the things that's important for people to know is that arbitration is typically a creature of contract, you know, meaning that you have to agree to be bound to it. Um, now, there is an exception in North Carolina, at least in the, the district court system, where um, if you've got a case that's um, where less than 25,000 at dispute, you will be uh, required to have an arbitration at the courthouse, but it, it's an hour and it's non-binding. Um, but for the most part, if you're involved in an arbitration, it's because you've entered into an agreement where the parties have decided that that is how any disputes arising out of the contract will be resolved. That's right, Justin. Um, and those agreements come in many different forms and many different industries. The ones that I see in our practice are primarily construction contracts between contractors and owners for construction of buildings, homes, commercial buildings. Uh, but you also see arbitration provisions in many other kinds of contracts. They're very common in the consumer contracts for credit cards, for example. Um, but many contracts that folks enter into on a day-to-day -day basis do have arbitration provisions that are, in fact, binding and require the parties to participate in arbitration rather than going to court and litigating. Yeah, I was going to bring that up, that if you have have signed a credit card agreement or a, or even computer software licensing or... You know, a lot, most, a lot of bank agreements, some mortgage agreements, you're, you, you more likely than not have signed some sort of a contract with an arbitration provision. And so it's one of those things that, uh, you know, the first thing you want to do if you're going to, to um, raise a dispute arising out of the contract or you're going to go see an attorney or something, it's important to take a look at your, at your contract to see, see where, what's the proper avenue to, to bring your dispute. Now, is that a bad thing, would you say, if you've got a, an arbitration clause in your contract? You go through it and, and find one and realize that's, the, that's where you got to take your, your issue? No, not necessarily. Um, those arbitration provisions provide for the mechanism for dispute resolution uh, in the same way that our court system provides for that kind of mechanism. So in any dispute where you don't have an arbitration provision, you would 
file a complaint down at the courthouse. You'd be governed by the rules of civil procedure and the rules of evidence, and you'd ultimately get a trial by jury or judge. In arbitration, there'll be rules that prescribe the dispute resolution, uh, how to find out what the facts are, how to get the information from the other side, and ultimately how to put on your evidence and get a final binding result. So it's not a bad thing necessarily. It's just a different type of mechanism for dispute resolution than the court system. One of the things I'd say is North Carolina is one of the few states that has a law that specifically prohibits clauses that waive your right to a jury trial. Now, arbitration clauses or arbitration clauses are an exception to that because there's, the statute does not prohibit uh, arbitration clauses because of, I believe the Arbitration Act, uh, that's a federal law, uh, supersedes it. So uh, if you, it's important not to get those two things confused when you're looking at uh, the jury trial waivers versus arbitration. I mean, it has the effect of opting, opting out of the court system as a whole, whether it's a bench trial or a jury trial. Uh, but you cannot have just a, a jury trial waiver on its own. But getting into that, so you find that you've got an arbitration clause in your contract. What are the what are the benefits, or why would a company such as you know what you deal with in your practice? Why would a construction company want to put an arbitration clause in its contracts? You know, generally the reason is that arbitration is faster and less expensive than litigation, uh, or at least that's the traditional viewpoint of arbitration provisions. Um, generally, the dispute goes from a very simple form that's filled out requesting an arbitration to a response to that very simple form from the other side, an answer, so to speak, to the contentions. There's an exchange of documents uh, related to the dispute, and then generally there's a resolution by either a single arbitrator or an arbitration panel fairly short time after that. Uh, on the other hand, the court system takes a while. Uh, you, you file a complaint, there's an answer, there's written discovery. Sometimes there's depositions where parties are asked questions with a court reporter. Um, and ultimately, it'll result in either a jury or bench trial. That process in North Carolina and Superior Court especially usually takes more than a year, uh, whereas arbitration can go as fast as anywhere from 30 to 90 days, depending on the type of dispute. So generally, the reason for arbitration is that it's quicker and less expensive. One of the things I've noticed with arbitration clauses and contracts is that I, I think it's important that the contracts spell out exactly what type of arbitration you want. Because I think you just got into, you know, kind of the, the heart of the issue that it can be what you make it, so to speak. Whereas, you know, you might have a panel of arbitrators, meaning three, five, you know, you might have just one. You know, I think the thing to, to keep in mind is that the parties are going to pay for it. Whereas the taxpayers pay the judges or our fees pay for the judges and the jurors. I think the jurors get their $14 a day or, or whatever it is. But, you know, the attorneys are going to be charging their hourly rate, and that's going to be borne by the parties. And a lot of times um, there's organizations such as the, uh, the American Arbitration Association that, that will kind of organize the event that has their own rules, and they've got kind of a, a, a procedure in place, but then they have to be compensated as well for what they do. So instead of the, the $200 filing fee that you might have at the, at the state courthouse, you're looking at quite a bit more than, than that to commence an arbitration. Well, that's exactly right. Um, and most arbitrations are governed by the rules of the American Arbitration Association, or AAA, and many arbitrations are run through the procedures of AAA. And, of course, the American Arbitration Association, or AAA, does have fees and costs associated with their work. You know, they have employees, they have arbitrators, they folks that need to get paid, and so they get paid by the parties to the arbitration. When I said that the perception is that the cost is less through arbitration, what I meant is while arbitration does have some cost associated with the administration of the arbitration itself through AAA, generally the cost of the attorneys for the parties is going to be less because there's less time dedicated to the dispute resolution. So whereas in court you might have a year or more of attorneys being involved and getting paid for their work on an hourly basis or contingency fee, in the arbitration process you might shorten that 
up to as little as 30 to 90 days with less involvement by the attorneys. So, you know, kind of in the, I want to use construction law as the, as kind of the example or the context. So if you've got a well-drafted arbitration clause in a, in a construction contract and it says, you know, that any dispute arising out of the contract is going to be submitted to arbitration before using the, uh, the, the AAA's construction rules for arbitration. If I'm a home, homeowner and I believe that, um, that, that there was a violation of the contract by the builder, what is the typical cost in commencing a construction arbitration? I'm talking about the upfront cost with the, with the AAA. I hadn't looked at those fees in a little while, Justin, but it, I think that when you submit a demand for arbitration to the American Arbitration Association, uh, there's a $250 fee associated with that demand for arbitration that starts the process. Oh, now, that, that's not bad at all. I was thinking because there's, there's some in the commercial sphere that I've been involved with where it was like a percentage of, of the amount in dispute. And so I, I was thinking it was it was a, a, a pretty high number in, in these things, but I guess it's it's not. Well, just to get it off the ground, it's not. Now, when you proceed further into the arbitration process, the fees go up from there. Um, there is, a, again, there's an administrative fee with AAA once the response is filed that has to be paid, and that's borne by both parties. And where the real cost comes in, the, or the, the bigger cost, is in the arbitration panel. Many of these arbitration provisions provide for a three-arbitrator panel of arbitrators, and each of those are generally attorneys and generally going to be charging by the hour for their time. So those fees can escalate very quickly once you get in the arbitration process. Is the default in the construction rules a three-arbitrator panel? Yes, it is. Well, I want to get a little bit more into the details of kind of the mechanics of how these uh, proceedings work. So we're going to take our first break of the afternoon, then come back, and I want, to, I want you to take us kind of behind the scenes of what a typical construction arbitration looks like. Sounds good. All right, we're back with Mark Hamlet, and he was taking us behind the scenes before we left into an arbitration proceeding. And kind of the example I've wanted to go through is your typical arbitration in a, in a construction context. So you've got a property owner will typically uh, raise an issue with a with a construction company, although it could be vice versa. There might be a payment dispute, or there could be um, something where the where the builder is bringing a dispute against the uh, the, the property owner. Um, but we've talked about earlier where the arbitration arises out of the party's contract, and so a lot of times uh, people reference the American Arbitration Association rules. And so what we were just saying is that. Um, the, the default, meaning unless you define it otherwise, is that there's a three-arbitrator panel that's going to decide your, your construction dispute. And what that means is you've got um, that the parties are going to have to split the cost of three attorneys to essentially serve as the judge, the, the fact finder, and the, the judge from a legal perspective of their dispute. Um, but I, I assume that that would be you could, you could work around if you look into limit your cost you could you could agree to maybe get only have one arbitrator that the parties share well that's right um just because the contract calls for the AAA rules to apply and potentially calls for AAA administration of the arbitration doesn't mean that the parties can't enter into their own private arbitration agreement by consent and that's fairly common uh, again, because of the cost of a three-arbitrator panel and the administration cost of the American Arbitration Association. So, theoretically, the parties could agree, okay, we're going to use one attorney for this arbitration, and it's going to be Mr. X or Mrs. Y, uh, and that person will be the sole fact finder and dispute resolver of this case, and that way you eliminate some of the costs that you'd otherwise have to incur through AAA. I imagine it's, it's difficult to get everybody to agree on who's going to arbitrate the case. Um, you know, because, I mean, I guess everybody, obviously, you, you want to pick the, the arbitrator that you feel like is going to be more sympathetic to your position. Or maybe it's just the arbitrator that you feel like uh, is the most capable of, of reaching a fair resolution. There, there could be different ways of, of going about it. But, you know, when you've got people that can't agree – to the point where they've they've initiated an arbitration action against each other, you know they they obviously see the issue differently. So sometimes it can be difficult to uh, to agree to who's going to be the final arbiter of of their dispute. 
And, you know, I guess why I'm getting into all that is, you know, one with the with the three, I, I think that is a benefit of the three arbitration or the three arbitrator panel is kind of the process of where each side picks their own arbitrator and then the arbitrators get together and kind of select the third. That's exactly right. So that's one thing about the AAA administration and the AAA rules that really do provide a benefit for the folks in the arbitration is that each of the parties, the person who demanded the arbitration and the person who responded to that demand, they each get to pick an arbitrator of their choice. So they can decide a person who has the characteristics that they want, the viewpoint that they want. You know, they may believe that the person has the experience required for their view of the case. Uh, and the other side does the same thing. And then those two arbitrators get together and decide on a third, sometimes called the neutral, uh, that completes the arbitration panel. And so it provides for both sides to have input, but a panel that's theoretically going to be unbiased and willing to hear all of the facts uh, and make a decision uh, that's binding on the parties. Now, in a AAA arbitration, can the parties select whomever they'd like to serve as the arbitrator, or does the arbitrator have to be certified by, by AAA? No, the arbitrators through AAA are certified. I'm a certified AAA construction arbitrator, for example. And there's a quite an arduous process to go and get certified. You have to take a series of courses uh, through AAA that are required. You have to have a certain amount of requisite experience. You have to have recommendations from other attorneys in the field. And so it's a fairly select group of folks that are on the arbitration panel for these arbitrations that people can pick from. You know, I haven't done a, a construction arbitration, but I, I have been involved in, in one that resolved. It was just it was kind of a, a money-owed type, type case. And the attorney I was dealing with was from Miami. And, you know, they, they gave us the list, or they, I'm talking about AAA, gave us a list of uh, potential arbitrators. And I was surprised I didn't really recognize any of them, except for maybe one was a local attorney that I've had some good experiences with. And so I, I suggested that guy, and I think you're meant to rank them as far as, because this was just a, a single arbitrator issue. And so I, I ranked the guy that I knew first, and then the others, I, we were given resumes. Um, so you can kind of look and see what the person's experience and, and background looks like. And so I, I had those other two. Well, you know, the guy from Miami didn't like any of my people and had, had uh, his own slate that he suggested. We, we were three completely different ways. And I believe, you know, the, that the AAA ended up just appointing somebody from the list um, because I guess, you know, they didn't, our proposals didn't, didn't match each other, but that was another area where they were able to f facilitate moving the, the, the matter forward, so to speak. But, you know, I, I think that's an area that's important because just without any rules to go from, it's, it's difficult to decide you know, who's going to be, you know, who are you going to select to, to be your arbitrator? Um, because it really is important, especially in the binding context where that's going to be the final say. Um, in those situations where we're not in the, the AAA rules, well, first of all, in the AAA rules, or do you have rates that you're locked into or does everybody have different rates? No, the arbitrators, um, select their own rate and that is part of their profile on the AAA website. So when you're looking as a potential party to an arbitration and you're trying to decide which arbitrator you think would be the best one for your case, one of the considerations might be the hourly rate and that would be listed on the profile of the arbitrators on the website. Yeah. How does it work as far as um, if you're not in AAA, um, have you been involved in those situations where there's just kind of a, a blanket or maybe a more generic arbitration clause? Um, is there kind of a state context or, or what, how do you, what, what are the rules of the arbitration if your clause doesn't select a specific set of rules? Yes, North Carolina does have an arbitration statute that prescribes uh, what to do in the event that an arbitration is going to be conducted outside of AAA or without any kind of oversight by AAA. But what I'll say is that it's very loose and that essentially the parties would have to agree on all of the provisions regarding discovery, regarding when to do the arbitration, regarding the number of arbitrators and that kind of thing. 
essentially those things would have to be agreed to by the parties if it's not administered through the American Arbitration Association. Well, what do you do in that situation where it's where you're trying to reach an agreement? I mean, uh, and you've got two parties that can't get along or they can't they don't see things the same way. So that's why they've got this dispute. I mean, is it just on the lawyers or, or I guess if it's pro se for the parties to just figure it out amongst themselves? Well, that's correct. Uh, ultimately, there can be court relief for certain parts of the administration of contracts that are subject to an arbitration provision. But for the most part, it's going to be simply consent of the parties and trying to reach an agreement about how to do it. And that's the reason why administration through the American Arbitration Association is beneficial, because you've got an entity that will decide these disputes when they arise. If there are problems with the administration of the arbitration, you've got somebody that can decide those things and move it along. It's kind of moving forward. You know, we're we started off talking about the the kind of the pros and cons of arbitration, and it was my understanding that that the typical situation where you see it arise is maybe a uh, uh, the larger company wants the arbitration clause because they want to kind of uh, short circuit some of the discovery process. But you know, we've talked about it before, and I, I guess from what what you're saying, that's not necessarily the case as far as the way things are going now. Well, that's right. What we're finding more, especially in the last you know, 10 or 15 years, is arbitration really looks a lot more like litigation in court. Um, the parties to arbitration are demanding more discovery, more time to analyze the documents, more depositions to talk to the witnesses that know something about the, the dispute, um, more flexibility to present evidence in the arbitration proceedings. So it has become the norm for arbitrations to sort of sprawl into something that looks more like litigation through the court process. Do they reference the rules of civil procedure in, in these situations, or, or do they, you just kind of make up your own rules uh, with respect to, you know, kind of almost like a discovery scheduling order where you're going to say we're going to do X amount of depositions and this is how long they can last? Or how, how does that process work when you're trying to decide which rules are going are gonna, to uh, establish what you can seek in discovery? That is really up to the arbitration panel and the parties to the arbitration. Ultimately, the arbitrators in these cases have a great deal of power in setting the rules for how to conduct the arbitration. What I'll say is generally the arbitrators go with the rules of civil procedure and the rules of evidence that we have for court, and mostly those rules apply. But again, it's really within the arbitration panel's discretion about how to administer the arbitration. Yeah. And so, you know, it'd be nice if they kind of, if they put that on their profile. So they say, you know, I just, I'm just kind of a, a, a get what you need to get type of guy, or I'm, I'm a streamline it kind, kind of guy for the arbitrations. Cause I imagine that's a big issue, especially when, you know, you, you anticipate it's going to be a document intensive case. Or if you've got some issues you want to get into and you know that the other side is going to be protective about who, who they allow to testify or what they what documents they believe you're entitled to. But I mean, I guess the, you know, the ultimate takeaway is that that it's if you're involved in, in an arbitration, it's important to kind of raise that on the front end with your arbitrator and say, look, look, this is what we're this is what we're trying to do in discovery. And this is why we need it. That's right. The profiles of the potential arbitrators on the AAA website do have some information about the perspective of the arbitrators. Um, so there is some information about their perspective on doing discovery or what the rules are uh, or their perspective on dispute resolution. So there is some information about that. And there's also an opportunity for the parties to the arbitration to actually ask some questions of the potential arbitrators so that they can get some things answered. Oh, that's, that's great. What do you put on your profile for, for your perspective? And Mine's pretty generic, honestly. Yeah. I just put a, a good bit about my experience in the construction industry, the kind of cases that I've litigated, um, and that, that's really about it. I'm pretty generic on the, the, uh, what I put on the website. Understood. So we've been talking about, you know, binding versus non-binding and just kind of the shorthand with that is binding means that's that's it. You're stuck with it. And um, it, but I, when you're involved in a binding arbitration, are there any ways to undo the result of the arbitration? That's extremely rare. Um, really, the only way, Justin, that the result of an arbitration can be undone is if there were some violation of the essentially the ethics rules. If the arbitrator knew one of the parties and didn't disclose it, 
or if the arbitrator knew something about the dispute and didn't tell anybody about that. Um, it's very, very rare that an arbitration result would be overturned. Generally, they are not appealable, and they are fully binding on the parties. So if, if there's something that's just the arbitrator reaches a result that's just patently legal wrong, legally wrong, like it's just, it's, it's like, let's say for an example, um, you know, you've got treble damages where, you know, an unfair and deceptive trade practice claim, um, you can get them. It's type of fraud type claim, but it's consumer protection statute. And just that the, uh, that the arbitrator just awards treble damages without there being even that sort of a claim made or, or if, um, or if it's just a simple breach of contract that wouldn't apply for that. Um, do you have any recourse there or if, or if there's just legal error, it just, it just kind of is what it is. Uh, again, it's extremely rare, but in a technical sense, if there is no basis in fact or law for the finding of the arbitrator, then theoretically it can be appealed. Uh, but what I will say is on a practical basis, the arbitration panel, the single arbitrator has great, great discretion in fact finding and ruling on the case. And any party to an arbitration should assume going into the arbitration that whatever the result is that the arbitrator finds, that's going to be a binding result on the parties. And when and when the arbitrators are putting together their award, you know, typically there's a in a jury trial context, you've got a judge that just gives the uh, the the jury instructions, which is a set of of the the laws for the jury to apply. But the jury finds the facts. Um, I guess in the, arbitra the in arbitrations, you're doing both. You're finding the facts and you're um, you're applying the law to the facts. Do you have to, in your award, do you have to write a lengthy kind of summation, almost like a judge would do in a bench trial situation, or are you just writing? Uh, do you write an order, kind of like a like an appellate judge, or or how how does how does that what does the result look like? That can actually be prescribed in the contract itself. So, in addition to the contract providing for an arbitration, providing for AAA rules to apply. The contract can actually say what kind of award is required from the arbitrator. Um, there are three different types of arbitration awards. Uh, one is a simple award. The simple award is basically just a number. Here's what the uh, amount of the award is, $500, $500,000, whatever it is. It's a simple number. Uh, there's an intermediate type of award that has some simple framework by which the arbitrator arrived at a decision that's going to be put in the award so that the parties have an understanding of how the arbitrator made a decision. And then there's what's called a reasoned award. And the reasoned award is a more expansive uh, explanation of how the arbitrator arrived at the decision. Uh, and it's really up to the parties based on the contract itself and then also based on the uh, arbitrator's uh, discussion with the parties about what they're looking for. You know, generally the arbitrators work with the parties about what they want. The arbitrators do have the authority to decide the case. They're going to make a decision that's binding on the parties. But for me as an arbitrator personally, I generally try to work with the parties and their attorneys to get what they want to have happen in the arbitration as far as process. Yep. And I imagine, you know, I guess there's, it's always, it seemed like it'd be upsetting to be a, a, a litigator and then you just get a number, you know, without knowing it. But at the same time, it's like, well, then the arbitrator's saying, well, I'm going to bill your client, you know, 10 to 15 hours to put together a, uh, a reasoned analysis of how I got there. Then might be, like, well, you know what, let's just <laughs> let's just go with the number. So I can see where people, where people would want it both ways. And if you're the prevailing side, I guess you, you might want to get out of some of that clear factual or legal error um, possibilities as well. If somebody's spelling out how they got there, but, uh, you know, you don't want to get a situation where, you're exposing yourself to the to a potential appeal. You've hit on the pros and cons, Justin. That's right. exactly right. There's cost associated with getting the reasoned award for sure. Well, the takeaway from arbitration uh, benefits uh, are the the speed, the control you can have over the process. Um, you know, you, you can kind of create your own discovery and, and kind of sh uh, seek out arbitrators that uh, that uh, that'll handle it the way you, you would like. If everybody agrees. You know, there's some, there's certainly some risks with the expense, and it, it can get away from you. So, I uh, appreciate you covering that for us. Uh, we're gonna take our, our last break of the hour, come back, and talk a little bit about mediation. Talking alternative dispute resolution with Mark Hamlet. And we just spent the, uh, the the first part of the show going through 
arbitration, what it is, how it how it operates, kind of the pros and cons of it, and and the different ways you can set it up, and and the the other main component of of dis alternative dispute resolution is mediation, and it's one that uh, the, the people in North Carolina are familiar with if they've been involved in the court system, and if you've had a custody dispute, it's required. Um, now that doesn't involve lawyers, but uh, but the main one that the lawyers deal with is the Superior Court Mediation Program been around, I guess, since maybe the early 90s. And and Mark's one of the, the guys in town that everybody likes to use. He's, he's the best mediator in town. And I wanted you to talk to, I wanted you to talk to everybody about kind of the mediation process and, and what it is and, and what you're trying to accomplish at a mediation. Sure. I, I think it's important to have a distinction, first of all, between mediation and arbitration, because it's a very important distinction between those two alternative dispute resolution processes. And that is mediation is not binding on the parties. The mediator does not decide anything. The mediator is not a judge, not an arbitrator, not a juror. The mediator is a person who facilitates a discussion. Uh, and again, while mediation is a process that you have to go through for any superior court lawsuit, so the parties are, are required to participate, literally that's all they're required to do is to participate to show up and to be willing to discuss the dispute. But mediation is a terrific process because as part of showing up, folks hear about the dispute in a different way than they've ever heard about it before. You know, most of the time, if you have a lawsuit, your discussion is going to be primarily with your own lawyer and maybe the other people in your company that know something about the dispute. And so, generally, your lawyer is going to agree with what you say about the case because they're your advocate. That's the way the court system is supposed to work. Your lawyer is generally going to be on your side and agreeing with what you say. When you get in a mediation, the mediator will facilitate a discussion between you and the other side where you will hear, maybe for the first time, what the other side thinks about the case, what their perspective is about the dispute. And... Sometimes that's not a real pleasant experience because nobody likes to hear that their case is not definitely going to be the winner. Uh, but mediation is a process where you at least hear what the other side thinks about the dispute. And sometimes through that process, mediation can result in a settlement of the case uh, by way of thinking about the facts and the law in a different way than you had before you talked about it with the mediator. You know, one of the things that, that I think is in, interesting about the mediation process is the ability to kind of see things through the other side's perspective. And you mentioned that, that kind of at least our court-ordered mediations have a, a formula, you know, where each mediator speaks, each side speaks, then you break off into separate rooms and, and kind of have one-on-one -on -one conversations with the mediator about your case. Um, if, if we're in a trial setting, the rules of general practice and the rules of evidence tell us what we can say in opening and closing statements. Um, a lot of times that seems to be an issue of dispute and mediations where, you know, I've seen where people want to circumvent or where attorneys want to circumvent the rules and say, well, I don't want, um, I, I want to skip opening statements. There's no point in that. Or, the, or they'll want to control what can be said in the opening statement. But, you know, the, I think the mediation just says uh, there'll be a uh, introductory statement by each of the sides. And it doesn't really get into what can be said and what can't be said. Well, that's right. Um, generally, mediations have what's called an open session, and that's a session where the lawyers and the parties are all in one room with the mediator, so everybody hears what everybody else says. And generally, both sides have a presentation where they present their version of the facts and law, their side of the case. Um, sometimes you're right. Lawyers or parties may not want to participate in that kind of an open session because they're angry with the other side or because they don't think it'll be productive or for any other reason. That's one place where the mediator does have some power over the process, though. The mediator is not a fact finder. They don't make any decisions, but they do control the process of mediation. And so the mediator can either insist on having an open session where everybody is there to present or can agree with the attorneys if both sides agree that it's not going to be productive then the mediator can agree that they're not going to have that kind of an open session they'll just split up go to separate rooms and the discussion will be through the mediator and separate closed sessions for the remainder of the day so that's really up to the mediator to control that process 
what do you do when you receive those kind of requests? Is do you re- require everybody to all involved to want to skip the opening statement? Or if one party says, look, I just can't stand to be around these folks or it's going to upset, it's going to trigger my client to have to sit in the same room with them. Do you just make that call sometimes to say, all right, we're just going to, we're going to bypass the opening session and go straight to, to the, uh, to, to the breakout sessions? Well, I'll say this, my default position is always to have an opening session where the parties hear from one another, because I think that's an important part of the mediation process. Um, but that being said, there are situations where the, the issues in the case are so emotional that an open session would hinder the process rather than facilitate a resolution. So I have seen those rare cases where, as a mediator, I'll, I'll agree with the attorneys that no open session will be required. And even if only one attorney is, is, is adamant in saying, listen, a, an open session is not going to be productive here. It's only going to infuriate my client and make it more difficult to talk. You know, I'll hear from them on that, and sometimes we do dispense with that opening session. Distinguishing between mediations and arbitrations, you know, to me, the biggest difference would be just the voluntary nature of of mediations. And not that it's voluntary to participate, because in in most, more times than not, you're involved in a a court-ordered mediation. Um, But the fact that you don't have to do anything, you know, or you don't have to... um, offer any money to settle or you don't have to offer whatever the other side wants. It's, it's kind of a, it's, it's an agreement between the parties. You know, the one thing being mandatory is that you have to stay until the mediator releases you. Um, you know, one of, one of my favorite things when I first started would be uh, when um, somebody would pull the, the packing up and going home after the first art, after their, the first offer or the first demand, um, you know, so, something along those lines. But I think that's kind of a misconception about attorneys is that you can't just leave the mediation um, because you're offended by what you've been offered or, or what the, the other side's uh, demanding. Well, that's right. I, I tell people in the open session when I'm giving them the explanation about what a mediation is. I explained to them that there will be times during the mediation where they will hear something that they will not agree with, that they will absolutely disagree with, and that's a natural thing. And that's that's what mediation is. It's it's the time when you hear things that you probably don't want to hear, uh, because that's the other side's perspective on the dispute. You know. However, sometimes hearing them, and maybe even hearing them more than one time helps people understand the other side's perspective. They won't agree with it. They may never agree with it, but they can at least understand it. And with that understanding, sometimes comes a willingness to compromise. Compromise is really the other key to mediation. There's two keys. One is listening, and the other is compromise. Because if you listen long enough, hard enough, work hard enough to understand the other side's perspective, many times it'll allow you to get into a mindset of compromise where you can see that Maybe your case has some warts on it. Maybe it's not exactly as you thought it was, and that'll allow you to have some ability to compromise and reach a resolution that everybody can live with. One of the things I think is nice about the mediation process, I've, I've been, um, I guess I've been certified as a mediator for the last two years, so I hadn't been at it all that long, but one of the things I enjoy about it is, is watching different litigators and how they go about things, how they present a case, kind of how they think through the issues. And a lot of times you get a chance to see what's effective and what's not effective. Are there common traits or tactics that you've seen amongst um, some of the litigators that you've watched mediate where you say, I, I really like how this person goes about it, or, or, or this person seems to always get a result for his or her client because of the way that they approach the, the, the process? Yes. Um and I'll say that one of those things might be counterintuitive to people as they think about attorneys and what the function of attorneys is in the court system. You know, people may come into a dispute lawsuit with the mindset of, well, I want the meanest attorney I can possibly find. I want a bulldog that's going to go in there and tear the other side up, uh, say rude things to them, be loud, be boisterous. What I'd say as a mediator is I've seen better results consistently from attorneys that are more reasoned, that are more uh, prone to being articulate about their position about the case while at the same time not being openly confrontational, uh, especially not loudly confrontational or rudely confrontational. I find that the best attorneys in these mediations are the ones that 
present their version of the facts and law in a well-articulated way, but without being offensive. Uh, I think that's one characteristic that I see. Well, and, and I think from from the litigator's perspective, I mean, there you, you know nobody likes when another attorney brings it to that level. Um, where where they're being abrasive and and making it personal, where they're internalizing things, or where they're you know making things more difficult than they have to be, just for the sake of uh, of being adversarial. But a lot of times, you know, especially when when this is your first lawsuit, and for most people, you know, if you're lucky, you won't be involved in a lawsuit throughout your your entire life. But you know, sometimes, uh, but I'd say for the most people that are involved in them, unless you're involved in a business or something where it's just part of the way it goes, it's, it's your only lawsuit. And so from their perspective, they want to see, and the, what I mean by they, the client wants to see that their attorney's really fighting for them, or a lot of times that can be pleasing to the client. Um, can you explain kind of why or the problems that causes when an attorney behaves that way on behalf of their clients? Sure. I, I think what happens sometimes is when you have an attorney that does make things personal, um, by either, you know, being rude to the other side, being overly confrontational, you know, being deceptive in their their strategies or tactics. I think what that does is it pushes the litigants apart from one another. And when you push the parties to a lawsuit away from one another, you basically ensure that the case is not going to settle. It's never going to resolve in any way other than by final resolution by a jury or a judge or an arbitrator. And the issue with the issue with that is people are entitled to get their verdict, to get their arbitration award. That's something that you're entitled to under law and you ought to be able to get. And there are disputes for sure where that is required. But the vast majority of disputes could be settled by resolution before trial, before arbitration before the thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and sometimes even hundreds of thousands of dollars are spent in litigating these cases through court and arbitration, sometimes it makes sense, most times it makes sense for the parties to decide not to spend all of that money and to devote their funds into trying to see if there's a way that the case can resolve before it gets to a final binding result. And the actions of attorneys who are rude, who are loud, who are sometimes borderline on deceptive, those actions are counterproductive to reaching that kind of resolution. It's been my experience. And, and I would say when I first started out, kind of I viewed it as the way a lot of probably a lot of the general public would view it is that is that you look at attorneys and, and how effective they are based upon wins and losses and trials or motions or, or, or that sort of thing. But, you know, it's really kind of wild, you know, so to speak, that if that's your mindset going in is, is, is you're expecting every case to go to trial because it's completely out of your, your hands. I mean, you need to be prepared for trial if it goes that route, because, you know, you, you certainly, you're doing your client a disservice if you're not ready once it, once it gets called. But, but for the ones that just, they're like, no, I'm not going to work it out. I'm just going to go to trial. It's, it's, you know, you, you never know what, what uh, 12 folks will do, and especially with the, the evidentiary rulings that a judge may give, and it, it, could, it can get away from you pretty quick. There's no doubt about that. The best attorneys, the ones that folks ought to try to find uh, to litigate their cases if they happen to be in a situation where they need a lawyer for litigation, are the ones who are ultimately incredibly prepared, well prepared for a trial if it needs to happen, but at the same time, operating under a mindset of compromise when there's an ability to be able to compromise and to get a case resolved before it goes to a judge or jury for resolution. Well, Mark, I appreciate you coming on and spending some time with me this morning and for talking about mediations and arbitrations. Uh, is there anyone, anything you want to tell everybody listening about how they can reach you or about your practice? Sure. Um, at Hamlet and Associates, we can be reached uh, at our website, www. Uh, at hamletandassociates.com. Um, and we're also down in the Monkey Junction area, offices down there, willing to sit down and meet with people at no cost, but regarding their disputes anytime. All right, thanks for coming on. Thank you.